0: The word is saved. All that I can tell. All that you can be said to Well, it's great to have you join us here again on the to Thinker Podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. In today's episode, we'll be continuing our presentation of my book review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, second edition. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to stop by on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen. It's www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash tyler.vella. Well, with that said, let's jump right into the episode where we, we will be presenting my review of McAfee's chapter entitled Cultural Christianity. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Review of Chapter Cultural Christianity The great irony of this chapter is that it addresses the same concerns that many Christians themselves are troubled by about Western Christianity, specifically in America. This concern is that many Americans assume that Christianity is a heritage and not a belief like being Jewish culturally, but not in religious devotion. Thus, we find people saying that they are Christian because they were raised in church, regardless of whether they believe in the Orthodox creeds or anything even distinctively Christian or not, let alone believing all manner of New Age, pantheistic, or what has even been called therapeutic moralistic deism. So, One wonders at the onset of this chapter how a problem with one specific cultural expression of Christianity, which is criticized by even Christians themselves, can even hope to serve as a refutation of historic or orthodox Christianity as a whole. Nevertheless, while McAfee and I agree that there is a problem, we disagree on what kind of problem it is. For McAfee, the problem is not that people are being disingenuous in their beliefs about the Christian religion, but rather that this is a problem of Christianity. That is, that Christianity organically breeds this kind of genetic belief. He writes, quote, Religion can be something similar to genetic inheritance. End quote. But what he seems to assume is that this kind of cultural Christianity is what the Christian religion is when in fact it is simply a cultural heritage or of some tradition of a religious heritage and quite distinct from the religious beliefs and practices themselves. So even if we accept McAfee's critiques of his, of this religion, of this religious inheritance, then we would still be left wondering, so what? That has very little to do with whether or not religious beliefs in general or Christianity in particular are true false. It is hard then to see how this critique could even serve as any function in a genuine attempt to disprove Christianity at large. However, McAfee will try to use this concept later in the chapter to argue that raising children in the church necessarily eliminates, eliminates their freedom to explore other worldviews. Here, one must wonder what his argument would then be for raising children in any worldview he does not say. We can legitimately address how we raise our children to be be critical thinkers, but if we believe that our worldview is correct, why should we teach them in order to cause them to disbelieve it? From my personal experience and knowledge of McAfee, I can confidently say that he is a philosophical naturalist, and while he may teach his children to be critical thinkers, Will he actually teach them that all theistic, deistic, pantheistic, polytheistic, or even distinctively existentialist or nihilist worldviews are equally viable options when compared to his own naturalistic worldview, and that he will intentionally not educate them within a naturalistic framework? One can only wonder... Yet my skepticism will not allow me to think that he will be as approving of his children reading Lewis and Lennox as he would of Dawkins and Dennett. McAfee alludes, though probably unintentionally, to the distinction Christians have always made between sheep and goats on page 1. Here I found myself wondering if he knows that this is actually one of the major arguments Christians use in explaining the crimes of the church done in the name of God, that That is, that those who commit such atrocities are most likely not Christians, since they so clearly betray their own rejection of the fundamental ethics of living as a citizen in the kingdom of God, and do not therefore represent Christianity at all. One needs only to think of Jesus' comment in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he spoke of false believers by saying, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from Thorn bushes? End quote. Matthew 7.16 Literally dozens of passages could be presented that address this theme. However, skeptics will often point out, point this as just another means by which Christians judge each other, a kind of only my interpretation is true retort. The problem with that overly assumptive pre- uh, view is, besides that it seems to presume that no group can be right, and yet implies that all views besides theirs are in fact wrong, is that the condition that divides the groups in these passages is never doctrinal. It is always ethical. When Jesus continues his sermon and tells many that come to him, pleading that they did many religious activities like preaching, driving out demons, and other miraculous works, what Jesus tells them is that they is not that they have their theological I's eyes dotted and their eschatological Ts crossed. No, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Religious activities are not and will never be the necessary condition for someone being identifiable as a Christian. It is the following it is the following of the ethical teaching of Jesus to love the poor, the orphans, the widows, care for the downcast, feed the hungry, and clothe the homeless. To not judge, lest they be judged. To be quick to forgive, slow to anger, and live a life marked by love. It is precisely this ethical behavior that is the determining factor from separating sheets from goats Doctrine is surely an identity marker, but if a person's ethics... But it's a person's ethics that show if they are, to the core, a follower of Jesus. Yet, here McAfee himself accepts even positively for affirms the claims that there are significant number of vapid Christians in name only, who do not believe the Christian teachings or act very Christ-like. Will he then allow it as a valid response, or at least part of a response, from Christians later on concerning the crimes of, quote, Christians? We will see. He then coins the term genetics of religion, a somewhat problematic term, I think. While this term might be somewhat descriptive of the way any belief is passed from parents to children, he will actually use this as a basis for the fallacy by the same name, the genetic fallacy. It is his contention in this chapter that because many people grow up to be Christians due only to their parents' faith and with little to no real understanding about the nature, content, or reliability of their faith, that this is that it is it is more rational in rejecting Christianity as a religion. For him, this is an argument against Christianity. He points to Christians who unreflectively grow up in a Christian home on page three, though, I would argue that anyone who is a Christian in belief and practice, and not just by heritage, generally has thought quite deeply about their beliefs. Yet, he seems to ignore that this same argument can be applied to any home of any worldview. It is so general that this argument actually becomes vacuous. What does he think about converts raised in a skeptical home, but who come to believe in God, like myself? Would this not, by his own standard, prove Christianity to be true, since he seems to think that conversion from a worldview is a sign of open-mindedness? Or does he only presuppose this to be true when one comes to disbelieve in a religion, a case of flat-out question-begging if there ever was one? However, beyond this, the genetic fallacy is to evaluate the truth of a belief by pointing to how or why a person came to believe it. The reason this is a fallacy should be clear. The truth or falsity of a belief is determined regardless of how one comes to hold the belief. A person in the Middle Ages might have come to believe fervently that the earth was a sphere orbiting a f- flaming ball of gas through hallucination, a dream, or, uh, or th- through innocently believing the testimony of a person who says that they were able to flap their wings and fly to the moon and see this for themselves that it was so. Now, does this mean that the content of the belief, that the earth is a sphere that circles a flaming ball of gas, is false and disreputable simply because of how the person came to hold that belief? Well, not at all. This is the problem with the genetic fallacy. It plays on our ability to see irrationality in the means by which someone came to hold the belief, and then tries to smuggle that disbelief into the discourse on the truth value of the belief itself. It is a kind of bait-and-switch. It tries to distract you with your disregard for how this poor person came to believe in something, while it slips the content of that belief in through the back door. This even, Thus, even if all the Christians in the world are guilty of this kind of cultural Christianity, it would have no bearing on our evaluation or the, of the truth or falsity of Christianity. He then goes on to say that inheriting religion is, quote, as likely as inheriting eye or hair hair color, end quote, page 4. While this is obvious hyperbole, the link is so drastically overstated, even when taken as hyperbole, as to be nothing but sheer presumption. If McAfee believes, which as an atheist I would be safe in betting that he does, That genetics are determinative of all human function, even belief itself, as popularly argued by such men as Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, then what recourse does he have to distinguish between Christianity and atheism in this respect? If beliefs about God, here belief and disbelief must be equally included, are conditioned by upbringing, then that scalpel would seem to cut both ways, and it would discredit atheism right along with theism. It either proves too little, or far too much, because it is not a commentary on the validity of Christianity, but on the model of parents as teachers. It is a critique of pedagogy, not Christianity. McAfee also asserts that all Americans are responsible to not, quote, simply take what they are taught from family at face value, as opposed to studying, questioning, and learning about multiple religious traditions in order to make an informed decision." Quote. And further on, he says that, quote, When a child is raised in religion, it eliminates the choice in what is arguably the most important decision one can make in a lifetime. End quote. However this provokes several questions. Firstly, at what point does McAfee believe children are cognitively capable of doing this? Does he not know that worldview development begins far before a child is capable of doing any of those cognitive functions? And while I agree with some of his comments, with the exception that religious instruction necessarily eliminates choice, I would wonder if he would encourage children raised in atheistic homes to do the same, to consider various religious religions as equally viable options. From what I can tell, I do not know that he would. In spite of that, we must also wonder then what are parents supposed to teach their children? What is missing from this discussion, besides that the logical extension of this commonly taken is nothing but an extreme invasion of privacy and parental rights, something on par with the Orwellian 1984 or Huxley and Brave New World, is that McAfee and many of the New Atheists seem to think that a parent not teaching their children a Christian worldview is religiously neutral or even worldview neutral, when in fact to teach a child rational, moral, spiritual, or existential autonomy is not neutral by any means and is in effect just the presumption of naturalism. Neutrality is a myth. This does not mean that a child should be discouraged from questioning, investigating, studying, etc. as listed above, but That the Christian message is precisely that we are not autonomous, rational, moral, spiritual, or existential agents, but are rather created imago Dei, in the the image of God, and thus derive logic, reason, morality, self-existence, natural law, and even our ability to question, seek answers, and comprehend an intelligible universe from the fact that we are creatures created by God and all possess what John Calvin called the sensus divinitatis. A sense of the divine. If this then is the case, we can ask, based on the second quote, whether or not children raised in McAfee, Dawkins, or Dennett's homes are equally at a loss of choice. Surely, none of them want to teach their children anything until they have cognitive abilities to scrutinize and think critically about what their parents believe. Indeed, without parents giving them a presuppositional framework, they would be at a loss for even how to think critically about anything. This may be an assumption, but I would venture to guess that Dennett did not tuck his daughter into bed at night and encourage her to explore the truth of the world's major religions for herself as equally probable worldviews and to critically evaluate his own worldview as well. Even if, as loving fathers, they they likely would be supportive of whatever their child later comes to believe, I highly doubt that such a thing would be encouraged or taught as a valid option. It is a kind of free thought with an eye in one direction. McAfee also makes the claim that those children raised in Christian homes will only end up believing that their religion is the right one because their freedom of choice has been stifled. What I find so ironic about this is that most people who are quote cultural Christians by heritage only, the group of Christians that McAfee is addressing in this chapter, are actually more often than not quite liberal in their theology, if they even have a theology at all. They are the Judeo-Christian version of the New Age movement. All you really need is love, pluralistic, all roads lead to God, or capitalistic, have it your way right away. In fact, this kind of cultural religious believer is often the type of person who is not willing to let their religious tradition inform their own autonomous beliefs, moral code, and actions because of their New Age pluralism and almost compulsive need not to offend. Either that, or they are so far to the other extreme that they don't even represent mainline or orthodox Christianity, and their bigotry would seem to place them in the goat's camp. To say that these are the ones who, because of their childhood environment, will be hateful, ignorant, or justify violence, is actually to attach the actions of the extreme right of the spectrum to all other Christians. The cultural Christians can come from the far liberal side of the spectrum or from the radical extremist fundamentalism on the far right side. Measuring this gradation seems to be beyond McAfee's ability or willingness to deuce, and so it is no wonder that he not only misses when he aims at the extremes on the left and on the right, but also on the orthodox moderate middle. At this point, I'd like to go back and read a footnote that I think was important but wouldn't able to seamlessly fit into the chapter itself. This is a footnote, um, footnote number 19, and for those of you who will eventually see the PDF, regarding the um, notion of child abuse among religious upbringing. So here's the footnote, footnote 19. Here we do not need to look any further than Richard Dawkins' own comments about religious parenting as child abuse. At the end of the May 2006 article entitled Religion's Real Child Abuse on his website richarddawkins.net, Dawkins says that priestly groping of child bodies is disgusting, but it may be less harmful in the long run than priestly subversion of child minds. Really? Teaching a child to believe in God is worse than molesting a young child. I think that most people see this kind of extremism for what it is. However, the problem is that many don't. Besides the massive problems that this kind of moral indignation will pose to Dawkins and McAfee when they later deny that morality is even real to begin with and so cannot ground their indignation, it is not a far cry from sanctioning the legal prohibition of religious parental rights. To those who think that that is too extreme even for Dawkins one only needs to google search his official support of the petition to the prime minister to ban religious instruction the document reads quote when the undersigned petition the prime minister to make it illegal to indoctrinate or define children by religion before the age of 16. in order to encourage free thinking children should not be subjected to any regular religious teaching or be allowed to be defined as belonging to a particular religious group based on the views of their parents or guardians." Due to a firestorm of controversy that this obviously stirred, Dawkins removed his support and said that he simply did not read it. Once again, my skeptical meter shoots through the roof when I hear such obvious PR maneuvers taking place. The new atheists often portray a thoroughly secular society as the pinnacle of equality and freedom, yet frighteningly enough, this invasion of parental rights is not actually unthinkable in atheistic states. It has happened before. In 1927 in Soviet Russia Lenin approved Penal Code Article 58-10 which dealt with quote counter-revolutionary agitation and propaganda end quote which allowed parents to be sent to the gulag for not less than six months for teaching their child the Lord's Prayer. So one wonders how Dawkins would like to end this child abuse. Surely, if he has the convictions to his belief, he would like to see child abuse stopped by law. If religious education is worse than child molestation, then why would we not think that Dawkins would demand a comparably harsher legal punishment for it? Dawkins is not far from demanding imprisonment for Christian or religious parenting. And that is the end of that footnote. We are going to continue on with the next chapter, Christianity in America. What is so strange in this chapter is that McAfee bemoans the pervasive influence of the Christian religion on the United States, its foundations, its laws, its political appointees, and many other aspects of daily life. And yet, in the next sentence, he praises the U.S. as the land of freedoms. What he seems to miss is the obvious connection. Our country is the land of freedoms precisely because of its Judeo-Christian tradition. When the framers formulated the Constitution, they were not at a loss for basing rights, equality, and justice, because they knew that they were inalienable in rights endowed by our Creator. Christopher Hitchens has the humorous line, Mr. Jefferson, build that wall of separation up. End quote. But what is so regularly missed by anti-theists in their political assaults on religion is that the Constitution was not, as McAfee seems to believe, to create a holy, secular state that is free from religious influence, but rather that it will be a just state free of religious persecution. Those two realities are quite distinct. They seem to miss the irony of calling the for laws to restrict religion in the public square by appealing to the First Amendment that reads, "...Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof." It seems the First Amendment is a political football abused by the right and the left these days. From here, McCarthy launches into a more politically charged survey of the church and state debates that have raged in the US for decades. He begins with Manifest Destiny, what often passes as foreign policy these days. While it was more brutish, the concept seems to be that the same as our political environment in areas like Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and our funding of Al-Qaeda as freedom fighters this is all the same just minus sometimes a spiritual component it is the nation's quote best interest that is at heart the problem with mcafee's point on this like elsewhere is that it still assumes that because christians thought it or believed it that christianity must teach it and that other ideologies such as atheism secularism or even democracy are free from the same trappings we can think of marie jean roland from 1754 to 1793 who was a French writer and political figure who presided over a salon and was influential in her husband's career during the early years of the French Revolution until she was arrested and executed for treason. At her execution she mounted the platform her eyes fastened on the Statue of Liberty and exclaimed "O oh, Liberty, what crimes are committed in thy name? End quote. While there is no excuse for the treatment of the Native Americans, the crimes of, prof- of a professing group does not invalidate the truth of the premise that the God of the Bible exists or that humans are made in his image. Think of the crimes committed under the auspices of secularism and atheism in the 20th century. Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, not to mention Lenin, Hoxha, Khrushchev, Castro, Zhang il Pol Pot, etc. And you will find that they are actually the in the history of humanity. Add in the crimes against humanity done in the name of science, treatment of mental patients, eugenics, forced sterilization, etc. And I think any anti-theist should backpedal on this argument. Here, I want to point out that I do not think that pointed to crimes of atheists or science somehow count against atheism or science. The point is only that If atheists make the argument that crimes of Christians and humanity count as evidence against Christianity as a belief system, as McAfee seems to want to, then what is good for the goose is good for the gander. If they allow that the negative distortion of an ideology counts as evidence against the ideology in general, even in its most moderate and modest forms, then the same argument applies to atheism as well. What we find when this happens is that atheism is, in the 20th century is red in tooth and claw. If the God is on our side mentality is dangerous, what about the nobody is watching mentality? In Primo Levi's masterpiece Survival in Auschwitz, Levi recalls that while suffering from thirst, he reached out to break off an icicle outside a barrack window. When a nearby guard snatched it from him and dashed it into a muddy puddle, Levi asked him, Vorum, why? The guard responded in German, Her ist kein Vorum, here there is no why. The greatest terror to our suffering is if the universe presents to us a blank face. The unsympathetic, uncaring, valueless universe of atheism can provide no basis for value, rights, Goodness or a justification to stand against immorality. Thus, when we see evil in the world and ask of it why, the only answer we can ever get back is "here is kein warum." Here, there is no why. Without God in the atheist universe, there is no why. It is not that we do not just not know why, or do not understand, or do not understand why but that there actually can never be a why. As Dawkins says, quote, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. End quote. We will explore the justifications, or lack thereof, and the implications of this position and ones like it in our discussion of McAfee's chapter on morality. While this, while this is not meant to address the full scope of the moral question at this point, it should be pointed out that most people when they know no one is watching, or that they will not be caught, are much more likely to commit a crime or immoral action than otherwise. This has actually been the focus of much study on what's called mob mentality. The anonymity that a crowd provides for the individual allows for multiple individuals to act violently in public, yet without much fear of individual punishment. We can also think of the blogs where there is an utter lack of common courtesy normally accorded to a person in a public or personal debate because of the distance from the other individual, the lack of any real repercussions, and often because no real names are used. From this point, McAfee then launches into a brief, per usual, treatment of the church's position as if it's monolithic to begin with, Regarding two hot-button issues, gay marriage and abortion, while there is not, while there is nothing close to sufficient space to handle these issues adequately on their own in this present work, I do have several thoughts concerning McAfee's treatment of them. In both cases, McAfee's comments not only drip with moral indignity—something we will see that causes him trouble later on in his own position on morality—but also they ooze with a kind of assured truth. That is, he unapologetically just begs the question. Rather than actually engaging with the Christian positions on these issues, and then respond to their arguments, and even respond to their possible objections to McAfee's own objections, he simply assumes that any reader will presume agreement with him that the Christian position is irrational and clearly on the wrong side of the issue, as if Christians were calling for the torture of infants for fun and profit. Besides, the fact that this is more question begging to serve as a banner waving to his fellow antitheistic troop, it also seems to gloss over the fact that Christians have numerous positions on these issues, even between Christians who are, properly speaking, evangelical, and therefore take seriously the moral statements of the Bible and believe that homosexual actions are immoral. The positions vary not just because of various views on the severity of sin in general, which would be the case between, say, theologically liberal and theologically conservative Christians on whether homosexuality actually is a sin or not, but also because of the perceived connection and expression of one's faith in relation to one's civic duty, or, to be more precise in the classical theological terms, in the way that the kingdom of heaven is played out in the political life of the believer living in the kingdom of man. While McAfee's concern that the more liberal Christians must jump through some massive loopholes to justify their faith and their acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle as morally acceptable, actually an argument many conservative Christians pose themselves, It seems this is to wholly miss the plethora of positions held by devoutly faithful Christians on these issues. For example, Christians committed to the Bible as the inerrant word of God and as the moral rule and authority for the Christian life hold the following views on the issue of gay marriage, and this list is far from exhaustive. Number one, that gay marriage should be banned. Number two, that gay marriage and civil union should be banned but full and equal rights should be allowed. Number 3. That gay marriage should be banned, but civil unions with full and equal rights should be allowed. Number 4. That gay marriage should be banned, but civil unions with full and equal rights should not only be allowed, but also championed by Christians individually, but not by churches in general. Number 5. That gay marriage should be banned, but civil unions with full and equal rights should not only be allowed, but also championed by Christians individually and churches in general. Number 6. That gay marriage should be allowed and supported by Christians individually, but not churches generally. Number 7. That gay marriage should be allowed and supported by Christians individually and churches generally. Number 8. That the church should not muddy its hands in politics, and thus that Christians should take no stance on the issue. Regardless of what one believes, even if any of these opinions are right this list should be enough to show that not only is mcafee's question begging irrational as circular reasoning always is but his summation of quote the christian position end quote as a monolithic standpoint is intolerably short-sighted to try and present the christian perspective as such a sharp dichotomy liberal or conservative is also entirely unjustifiable One wonders if such a misstep should be considered a mistake, an oversight, or an intentional deception. I would hope for the former, but in either case, there seems to be no excuse to think oneself qualified to write a book and include such an abrupt and inadequate treatment of a very complex issue. We then find that the concept of Christian terrorism on page 18 shows that what McAfee is actually dealing with is not in fact Christianity with the fundamental kingdom ethic of turn the other cheek embodied by Jesus himself, but rather a kind of extremism on par with that of suicide bombings or eugenics. What is being glossed over here is the overt use of guilt by association caused by the previously noted inability to differentiate between normative religious belief and extremism. One cannot blame the sheep for what the wolves are doing in disguise. A final comment can be made in segue into our examination of the next chapter. In the close of this section, McAfee writes quote, We will begin debunking Christianity with a philosophical flaw found in any religion that ensures spreading by embedding acceptance requirements into doctrine doctrine. For example, if you are a Christian and believe the words of the Holy Bible, you believe that everyone who does not believe as you do will suffer eternal damnation. This is an archaic concept that many traditions utilize in order to scare people into believing. In this fashion, the Bible and its adherents are using fear to convert people to Christianity." Quote. Several comments can be made about this section. First is that calling something archaic may get a rise from his fellow anti-theistic fundamentalists who are predisposed to already agree with him, but it does not actually mean anything. To call something archaic, in the pejorative sense, means that something is somehow wrong because it is old and outdated, yet this is not necessarily the case. Should we say that mathematics, logic, philosophy, science, art, democracy, etc. are all invalid because they either have roots in the ancient past or are themselves archaic? Simply calling something archaic in order to to disprove it does little to address the actual truth value of the position. Furthermore, as we will see more in the next chapter, This summation of Christianity as winning converts through fear-mongering is also quite a misstatement concerning the historic Christian doctrine and theology of evangelism. The Christian belief is not that people are condemned because of their unbelief, but because of their sin and their reprobate legal status before the throne of heaven's judge. However, beyond this, it is actually the contention of many Christians themselves, such as in the Reformed tradition to which I belong. That attempting to win converts by simple shock and awe is itself a kind of blind moralism which assumes a person is capable by their own merits and good foresight to earn their way into heaven by their belief. This heresy is known as Pelagianism and has been condemned throughout church history more than almost all Christological heresies combined. Yes. As a Christian, I believe that heaven and hell should be presented as the actual as the real outcomes of the choices that we make. But if one confesses to believe simply in order to collect their get out of hell free card, this is actually not the heart and mind acceptance of the death and resurrection of Jesus on their behalf so that that could be so that they could be redeemed. The concept of hell may lead someone to realize that their sin before a holy God and their need to repent and be forgiven, but this is nothing like the fearmongering alluded to by McAfee. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. If you have any questions or comments, remember you can join me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com Don't forget the hyphen www.logical-theism.blogspot.com through email at tylervella at gmail.com or find me on facebook at facebook.com slash tyler.vella. Join us next time as we continue our presentation of my book review of McAfee's book dealing with this chapter morality versus worship. Have a great day everybody.